Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Christian Hunters of America podcast. This is your host, Chet Gray. As always, we have Mike Ronoski in studio. How are you, Mikey? We are doing fantastic. Hello, everybody. We are blessed to have Glenn Steelson in studio today. He is the owner of Independence Training. Um, we've had Ted on one of our previous episodes, and we found Ted on the ham radio episode uh, through Independence Training. We're going to showcase everything that Glenn has uh, in his cadre of training from firearms, from first aid, from everything else he's going to shed light on. How are you, Glenn? Great. I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show. This episode has been in the works for months. Um, we had Thanksgiving. We had elk hunts. We've had uh, deer hunts. We've had Christmas. We've had New Year's. Mike's schedule, my schedule, and Glenn's schedule are crazy, and we are very blessed to have Glenn in studio today, and uh, thank you very, very much for being patient with all of our craziness. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, same same to you guys. I think it was, uh, hey, you want to come on the show? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Okay, I got a deer hunt. I'll hit you up afterwards. And then <laughs> I hit you up afterwards, and someone else was like, well, I got a deer hunt. It's like, all right, well, then I'll hit you up afterwards. Like, well, now I got an elk hunt. Okay, well, we'll hit you up afterwards. <laughs> this is like bouncing back and forth, so... Obviously, we're pretty avid in, uh, in this sport, and it's hunting season when we're trying to get together, so that kind of took some time. Holidays and hunting season, and it's the best time to be outdoors in Arizona right now. It is. We, we say it all the time. We say it on lots of podcasts. We are willing to put up with June through September for what we deal with right now. While you guys are shoveling snow, even up north, um, this is when it's great to be a Phoenician. If you want to just quickly introduce yourself and uh, tell us a little bit about independence training and what, what is entailed in that company. For sure, yeah. So uh, my name, as you said, Glenn Stilson. Uh, I'm the head instructor for independence training, and we are an emergency response training company based out of Tempe, Arizona. And when we say emergency response, sometimes people automatically assume, oh, so you guys like work with EMTs and stuff. And it's like, yeah, sure, that's professional emergency response. But everybody is ultimately their own first responder. And if you work in professional emergency response, then yeah, you are still your own first responder. If you're a regular armed citizen or an outdoorsman or hunter or whatever, yeah, you are your primary first responder. And so that's ultimately what we want to teach people. Self-reliance and confidence is our primary goal. So we do that through firearms training, medical training, survival training. We have combatives programs that we teach. We've got a great cadre of instructors. We've got 12 of us. And all of us come from pretty interesting and, and unique backgrounds that all tie into those things so that when we have someone who comes to us and says, hey, I, you know, I want to improve myself for lunch. Like, well, what do you want to do? You know, you mentioned having Ted on from comps. Like, well, that's a great way to improve your self-reliance is understanding better radio communications or better comms in general when the cell phones aren't available or maybe they don't work or maybe they're just not needed. Mm -hmm. And that's just one part of things. And some people enter into emergency response training through there. Some people enter in through firearms because that makes more sense to them. Some people enter in through medical. In one way, shape, or form, our goal is to get people more interested in taking care of themselves and even the name of our company, Independence, which has been around for uh, about 14 years now, 
it is very specifically selected. Now, as as kind of a funny thing, I love the the word independence, but if I could go back and find a different word that wasn't so hard for people to spell, I probably would do that. It's all E's, okay? It's an I, and then all the other vowels are E's. I'm guilty. Guilty. (laughs) So we've had some interesting times over the years, which is actually why our website... It's still independencetraining.com, but the easier way to find it is trainingaz.com, trainingarizona.com. So a lot easier for people to find that. But the term independence, when we selected it, really came down to two things. One, I wanted to give people their independence from uh, a, a system, I don't want to get political here, but from a system that does not benefit the individual. And... On the other side of things, I wanted to give myself independence in being able to be self-employed and do something that I that I was passionate about, something that I wanted to do. And so independence to us is incredibly important. It's not just a cool, catchy name. It's something we, we selected very, very particularly. I love it. If we're not going to go back to 2019, 2019 through uh, 2021 of what everybody had to deal with, but I think it brought a lot of awareness to different things that people took for granted. You think you can just go and buy dog food and toilet paper and uh, a case of water in 2018. It was no big deal or even most of 2019. Um, It wasn't until March of 2020 when all the craziness really started happening, but it's no big deal. I want to go buy a pound of hamburger You know, everybody that I speak with that aren't hunters are like, I get you eat it, but I don't need to hunt. I I can just go to Fry's. I can go to Costco. I can go to any grocery store. I'm like, what if you couldn't? What if it ran out? Everybody right now, beginning of 2023, are seeing the influx on how expensive eggs are and what a dozen eggs cost versus if you had a couple chickens in your backyard. Um Lots of people that don't necessarily think about self-reliance were made aware of how easy the economy and how easy the supply chain, how easy a lot of that can collapse. And as you said, you are your own first responder. You have California dealing with lots of floods. We have people here that deal with forest fires in the summertime. You have other parts of the world um, in the U.S. that have hurricanes or tornadoes. And I'm sure they've been taught at an early age on different things, and they got different building codes, and we won't get into that. But just a lot of people don't have a generator, you know, for backup. What if, even if you're not a hunter, you don't want everything in your freezer to spoil. Um, And if you're out camping, a lot of people do like to recreate. We saw record numbers of people outdoors. All the motorsports places saw record profits probably from everybody buying side-by-sides during those two years. And you see on those major holidays, there's a razor flipped on its side because, you know, whoever didn't know to take a turn or, and then what it could happen to anybody, but then how, how do you treat it? Because a sheriff's deputy or any law enforcement or EMT may have an extended ETA before they can get there. And if you could prevent it, and you could help even yourself or someone else, that's kind of where your company comes in on. It's teaching you how to be uh, more reliant and more self-reliant in order to prepare for yourself 
and in order to take care of your family first and foremost, but it'll allow you to help other citizens that you could come across on a highway in a collision, outdoors, anywhere. There are so many circumstances when uh, first aid, self-reliance, firearms training can help you. We luckily are in Arizona in a pro-Second Amendment state that we don't have to worry about a lot of these crazy laws, but um, just because you can carry doesn't mean that you practice enough or that you have um, enough training under your belt in order to address a certain threat. People react differently to, you know, certain certain uh, situations when you're faced with, you know, a threat or um, high high stressful activities. You you don't you think you're going to be involved in a shooting and you think you can handle business, but sometimes people the flight response takes over instead of the fight response. Can you elaborate on some of those trainings on what help make people adapt? And if you have, I, I say it sometimes, like if your mind hasn't gone through a certain scenario, your body won't know how to react to it. Mm. And if you are dealing with those and training in a controlled environment, dealing with first aid or firearms, the more you practice with that, the more you'll have that confidence when a real emergency happens. So there's, you, you went down about 30 eight, rabbit holes easily, <laughs> easily. So I'm going to, I'm going to start with this one straight out, kind of straight out of the gate. I'm sorry. No, you're fine. It's like you said before we even started the show, like, man, we could probably stay in here until the sun goes down easily and, and be talking about just a, a few concepts. So there's a, probably the biggest one I want to touch on is what you ended on, which is just in self-defense, right? So, the majority of people who have firearms, and I, and I can say this from you know, being in this industry for a very long time and being uh, in the job, on the job, so to speak, for a very long time, um, being a professional gun carrier. And the majority of people who own firearms have never been in a situation, in a training situation, where they've ever had to be pressure tested. Certainly not even a real world situation. And, and here's the reality of it, right? People are really into like our military backgrounds, you know, and they love it. And it's cool, man. A lot of our guys on our, on our team, we're, we come from special operations and really cool stuff, man. It's super neato and a long time ago. So, and mostly out of context for what we're looking at from an armed citizen's perspective. If you look nationally at all of the cool guy instructors, you go on Instagram, you watch everyone doing all their cool guy stuff, dressed up in kit. They got, you know, full sleeve tattoos, big beards, the rec you know, the required stuff to be a cool veteran. Um, in order to do that, what's needed? Nothing. The, nobody has to have proven anything to get to that point. So that's thing kind of number one when you're looking at what the concepts are you want to be practicing. Thing number two to consider is this. Of all those people I just mentioned, how many of them have a one singular legitimate use of force incident under their belt as an armed citizen? Slim to none. Zero is the answer. Right? And so yet everyone turns to them for this experience, you know? And so what experience are we trying to gain from, from people, you know, like, like me and the team and you even who, who've been under some kind of stressful, you know, critical stress incident, we like to say. 
what kind of experience can we gain? Well, I, in my opinion, it's the importance of training. Why do people survive these situations? That's what needs to be looked at. Look, you can be a relatively mediocre shooter and get through a violent conflict. All right. All right. I'll bag on law enforcement for a second. Law enforcement is enough to show that you can be a relatively mediocre shooter and get through because, I mean, what's the, what's the national hit rate for law enforcement? 20%? I don't know. It's not high, right? And what is happening in that critical stress incident? Is it only shooting? No way, man. People are communicating. They're on the radio. They're trying to detain people. They're trying to move. They're trying to maneuver. They're trying to find cover. Maybe they're trying to reload. Like, it's a dark. They're trying to watch their partner so they don't shoot them. They're trying to not get hit by a car in traffic. They're trying not to sh accidentally shoot some innocent bystander. Like, there's a lot. There is a lot that is going on. Shooting is a relatively slim part of the fight. And so you guys can see this, but I'll describe it to the listeners. If I were to spread my hands apart, this is something we say in class all the time. If I spread my hands all the way apart, and I were to say that the fight, we'll call it, encompassed everything between these two hands, as far as, as my short little arms will freaking stretch apart. The, the, the actual shooting importance, if I was going to pull my hands together and damn near touch them, that is the shooting importance. It is important to be, to have some level of good standardized shooting. Like you need to have accomplished some tasks in shooting. But ultimately, what's more important in the fight? Well, it's more important that I know how to potentially uh, deter a fight, avoid fights, live my life in such a way that I don't have to worry about all these self-defense situations. Or I need to do better at conflict resolution. My verbals need to be better. My movement needs to be better. My hand-to-hand -hand combatives need to be better. Let's face it, most people's physical fitness needs to be better. Fights are exhausting. And then you start looking at all the other aspects, of which there are many. Shooting is just one element of that. So my point to all this and, and kind of where we started from is what is it in shooting, in shooting training for self-defense that people really need to be focused on? It's pressure testing. Guys, it's not a sub-second draw. It's not looking cool on the Instagram. It's not how many, how many rounds I can fire and how fast I can fire them. That's what we call range theatrics. Right. Right? It's, it's very cool, but it's shooting. It's not fighting, and those are two very different things. Most people who practice for self-defense have only ever practiced shooting. They go to the range. They fight, quote-unquote, uh, against compliant, non-competitive paper or cardboard targets. Who will they? A paper or cardboard target allows bad shooting. They allow bad tactics. They allow bad techniques. They allow bad mindset. It doesn't matter. It's just a piece of paper or cardboard. So you can do anything you want to against that thing, and it's not going to matter. And that's most people's idea of, okay, now I'm ready for self-defense because I stood static on a static target that will do nothing to stop me from doing this. <clears throat> I'm going to shoot at whatever speed. You know, people will come to us and go, hey, I want to get more accurate. And I go, well, how accurate are, are you right now? I want to get faster. Well, how fast are you right now? Well, I don't know. Well, then how am I supposed to make you faster or more accurate if you don't even know how accurate and fast you are right now? I mean, how long? If you, look at it from a hunting perspective. How long does it take you to take your hunting rifle from whatever your storage position is? Let's say a sling, your pack, a scabbard, you know, however it is that you carry it. And get that thing into an operational condition, whether you carry one in the chamber safety on or you carry empty, you know, chamber, however it is you carry. Get into an operational condition and then get into a good improvised shooting position, not a bench, but a good improvised shooting position off a rock, off a tree, off your pack, off whatever, you know, shooting aids that you carry. And then make a shot at whatever your expected kill range may be. And that could be from 50 to, you know, 500 or beyond, just depending on how far you expect to shoot stuff. You know, how long does that take? And for most hunters, the answer to that question is, I don't know. 
They don't know how long it's going to take. What if that deer is about to step behind that brush? You have a three-second window. You have a five-second window. Can you accomplish that? Is this what you practiced, or do you just go to the range, set up on the bench, shoot tiny little holes, and consider yourself ready? You know, how often are you practicing shooting off a bag, shooting off a tree limb? How often do you go out and just train in your hunting gear? I mean, it's, it's amazing to me how people are like, yeah, they go out on the range out here in Phoenix. Like you said, the weather's beautiful. They go out to a beautiful weather. They go out, it's nice and sunny. They're in like t-shirt and jeans, no gloves, no extra bundles of clothes, no pack on. They get on the bench, they shoot a tiny little group, and they're like, boom, I'm ready to go. And then they go out into the field where they just hiked up a canyon. They're out of breath. There's the buck of a lifetime. They got gloves on, their packs on. It's cold. They're a little hungry. You know what I mean? They've been staving off having to take a dump for two hours because they're trying to get to the top <laughs> of the mountain. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, Guilty. They, All 100% uh, true. So, and then you show up and you're like, oh my God, there he is. You know, and you get, and now, now it, this isn't shooting off a bench. So how, yep. how much are you practicing with those gloves on? How much are you practicing, you know, getting exerted, getting physically exerted and having to make a shot, learning how to control your breathing? And it's that same exact concept that we could take and we could apply to any kind of shooting. But back to the vein of self-defense, it's that same idea. When was the last time, as an armed citizen, most people, or even in law enforcement, I mean, how much time is really force-on-force training? And it could be cool SIMs or UTMs. It could be, which are training munitions that are designed to simulate real firearms um, that fire little wax pellets in there. Uh, or it could be as simple as airsoft. I, I don't care. It could be blank firing guns. It doesn't really ultimately matter because, again, the shooting at that point is a really minimal. In, like You need the heart rate. A, I elevated. need everything else. I need to be moving, shooting, worrying about Get pulling off the, off the dark. I got to be doing all those things. And how many people are really practicing that? So, you know, to kind of answer your question of, okay, where, you know, where do people need to be? What do they need to be practicing? It's so much more of that. It's everything that happens. So we call it the zero to kill concept in our training. And it's most people only know how to go from zero to kill. They're either like doing nothing or they're shooting a bad guy in the face. And they don't really have any skill sets in between that. Most guys, let's face it, our combative skills for the most part for dudes in America are like, I punched a dude in high school once, or I was in the military and I went through defensive tactics, or, you know, I was in, you know, did DT as a cop or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, how often do you really go to the mat and throw down? How often do you go to the gym and really roll with people? Because you're going to need those skills more than you're going to need a gun. And, and you look at most fights end on the ground. And yeah, yeah. And it's and so now like now look at gun access. I mean that's part of what we teach in our curriculum, like our entangled handgun class or our close contact handgun class. How do we access our equipment from compromised positions inside of vehicles on the ground? Someone you know holding on to my arm. Someone actually grappled up with me. And how am I going to shoot that? Everybody agrees that the average engagement happens between you know around three to five yards, right? That's kind of the typical FBI standards. Okay, and yet. If you were at three to five yards, would I want to push my, my self-defense pistol all the way out to full extension? No way, man. That person's going to attach to that gun, and that doesn't mean I'm going to lose my gun, but now it means I have another problem when I obviously already had a lot of problems. I don't need to <laughs> add a problem onto problems, right? And so how often do people practice shooting from retention effectively, efficiently? I'm not talking about that John Wick crap. I'm not talking about most of the stuff that people see on Instagram either. I'm talking about real, actual, proven concepts of retention-based shooting that keep people able to defend themselves inside of arm's length distances. If we agree that fights start arm length, 
arm's length, then why are we always practicing like the guy's going to be seven or 20 or however many you know yards away? Right. So I would say if, if anything needs to kind of change with how people are thinking of just their self-defense firearms training, it's understanding more about the opposition. And that kind of takes me back to, you know, me kind of bagging on my, on my military brothers and saying like, Hey, everyone gets into training afterwards. Cause it's like a, you know, for some people kind of like a go-to way to make a living or whatever. But honestly, the majority of the stuff that's being taught is it's it's ridiculous. It, Different it's, rules it's of ridiculous. engagement, it, and and even that. I mean, yeah, you like I, I would rather have someone who really understands the law teaching me about armed, you know, being an armed citizen than some you know, Navy SEAL or whatever. Like that's not the only criteria that I need. So I don't even know if that guy's ever really carried a pistol. I mean, it was right. in the military who barely even carried pistols. They weren't part of what we need. We had bigger guns. Why, why would we want a pistol? Right. You know, and so it, it's, a, it's a whole different world, uh, you know, from different rules of engagement to, to different settings. Look, man, back in the day, I had access to a lot of assets. Now it's me and the kids and the wife in the parking lot. 100%. Very different world. I got a Glock 19 with one extra bag. This isn't, this is all I got, man. You know, it's, this is a totally different world. And so we need to approach things very, very differently as well. So understanding your opposition, understanding who you're actually up against, what they're targeting you for, why they're targeting you, um, you know, how to avoid those things, all that kind of information, infinitely more important than just learning how to shoot small groups real fast. And like you said earlier, the con conflict resolution and how to deescalate situations that is super important that most guys don't realize, and you see those in road rage incidents or you see those horrible news stories when something happens to a parent and the kid or the parent and whoever they were in, you know, had the conflict with, whether it's, you know, yelling out the window, cutting someone off, wherever, they go into black and go into that tunnel vision and forget the kids and the other person doesn't realize that there are children in there the first thing would be don't get in that situation, especially when you have loved ones in the car. Don't do it by yourself, much less. Just it isn't worth it in the grand scheme of things at all, especially when you have children, a wife, friends, family, whoever in the vehicle with you. And, you know, just making that point is super critical because – so many people just see black and I'm going to win. I'm going to win no matter what. I can do this. I can do that. That's the wrong mindset to have when you have kids in the back seat and you see that time and time again. Phoenix is a growing city. You got people from all walks of life and from all over the world that move here and you don't know their background. You don't know where they're coming from. You don't know what, what they've experienced. People are so quick to fly off the handle and – you know, just because you have a firearm doesn't mean that it's going to end well for you or your family. And a lot of that, too, is <clears throat> understanding, like, <laughs> where you ought to be putting your resources. Like, a lot of people go, okay, I want to know what the best home defense gun is. And I'm like, I, okay, first of all, let me just say up front, I don't care, all right? Whatever you have in your hand, be very good with it. I don't care. Other than that, I seriously don't care, right? Uh, there's some good choices. Sure, I have what I would prefer in certain given circumstances, but ultimately it doesn't matter. And here's part of the reason it doesn't matter. Because before we start considering home defense guns, let's consider the structural defense, or the four Ds of structural defense, first of which is going to be deterrence. Why is someone, why is your home, why is your structure 
a target to begin with. It already should be a very unappealing target. Your security doors, your you know, lights, your cameras, your security glass, your barking dogs, your, you know, activity in and out, your unpredictable, you know, schedules, all those things that we should be doing regularly anyway, just to kind of throw off the opposition should already make your place non-appealing. So deterrence right there. The next D is going to be detection. We should be able to detect people. That's motion sensor lights. Again, that's dogs. That's people looking out for you. How well do you know your neighbors? Here's a thought. Instead of going and buying a gun, why don't you go out and have a beer with your neighbor? Go, you know, go across the street and set up a barbecue, you know, and get to know somebody who might be able to look out after your place and walk over and, you know, while maybe you're gone on vacation or gone on a hunt or something like that, just kind of keep an eye on things. That detection is critical to furthering that deterrence. The next D is delaying. Okay, we haven't deterred them. We have detected them, but now we need to delay them from getting in. Well, now there's a 101 delay processes, and that is security doors and security glass and and barking dogs and, you know, yelling neighbors and and all that kind of stuff that's going to help us. You know, there's a lot of other structural stuff we can do. And then the very last D is defend. So if you have someone who's gotten through all those processes and now it's self-defense time, you're probably the kind of person that's very well prepared for that use of that gun. So that's why I say, I don't really care what it is. You know, it's going to be an AR with a red dot or a pump action iron sight shotgun or, you know, Glock 17 or whatever your favorite handgun is. Like, whatever, man. It doesn't ultimately really matter. And so people looked at it more from that perspective of like, hey, man, the gun kind of is the last it really is the last option. Now, and sometimes it is the first thing you have to go to, and that's just that's just kind of how it's going to have to be sometimes. But in, if it's not that immediate violent interaction, then let's do everything we can to avoid that. I mean, I would argue, especially with, with most guys and most modern people generally, instead of going and dropping another $500 on a new handgun or $2,000 on a new rifle, why don't you go get some freaking counseling, man? You know, a lot of us got a lot of demons buried deep inside, and we need to go talk about that stuff with someone who's really good at helping us work through that so that when we find ourselves in that violent altercation, we have those coping mechanisms to go, hey, you know what? Let me, like, take a chill pill. You know what? It doesn't matter if the guy cut me off. It doesn't matter if I missed my exit because he's being a jerk. I can just go down one exit. It's going to cost me another two minutes, but ultimately – that's not what's killing me here. Because if I get in some violent altercation with this guy, I he gets a vote. He right. gets a vote in what happens next. If I involve myself with him or him with me, it's not just me. Again, this isn't just me against this static, non-competitive, compliant target on the range. This is now going to be a living, thinking human being with free will and initiative, and they get to do whatever they want, including killing my family or killing me, which is almost the same as killing my family. And so in that case, it's like, yeah, if maybe if I have some pent-up problems, maybe I should go see somebody about that. And, and that's why when you look to us, the idea of self-reliance is this full encompassing idea of, yeah, man, we need more stable human beings out there if we're going to carry guns, if we're going to carry med kits. I mean, look, a med kit is useless to you if you're panicking when it needs to be used. A med kit is useless to you if you're not prepared to see someone's insides a med kit is useless to you if you're not ready for that so you know if you're out there with your buddy and you're on a hunt or you're a hiking or whatever you know backpacking whatever it may be and, and someone gets hurt do you can you physically make it to them yeah okay you got the kit and you've got the right mindset and that's all awesome but like where's your physical fitness level at 
Can you now hike down into that canyon that your buddy's in? Can you stay with them for four, five, six hours? Are you able to, you know, stabilize them there and then hike back eight miles to a tra- to a trailhead or three miles back to the truck or whatever and then, you know, be able to accomplish all those things that need to be done in a critical stress situation? And most people will say things like, well, I could if I had to, but that's not true. You're only capable of doing what you're capable of doing. You're not capable of magical tasks or feats in just because adrenaline pumps. People are like, well, under adrenaline, and I always go, hold on, let me stop you right there. That's actually the last thing you want. You really don't want adrenaline. Remember, adrenaline dumps are what happens when your body thinks it's going to die, right? It thinks this is it, man. So right. it, it dumps adrenaline so that you can run or fight or freeze, as we know, the fight, flight, or freeze concept. But it dumps adrenaline going, this is it, man. And guess what else happens in early adrenaline dumps where people don't know? <laughs> yeah, that, that you know, two-hour poop you were holding up we were talking about earlier, coming out now. Yep. You know what I mean? You're going to piss your pants. You're going to throw up. You're going to poop. You're going to whatever. Whatever your body's like, hey, we got to cut sling load. We got we to gotta get rid of this you know, excess cargo. And we got to go. And all these things are non-desirable effects. We, we don't want adrenaline dumps. And we don't want to have to get to an adrenaline dump for us to be able to perform to our maximum capability. We, we already want to be able to accomplish those things. And so for most people out there that are looking at expanding self-reliance and they're like, okay, cool, I want to come to, you know, this type of class. Like I was saying earlier, we use a class or, you know, one, one type of class to kind of get them in. And then once they're in, now it's like, all right, now we're going to tell you, here's other things that you need to work on. It's, a lot of stuff we can't even help them with. It's like, man, you need to change your diet. You need to get in better shape. You need to, you know, you need to go seek out some counseling. You need to improve your personal relationships, you know, whatever it is. There's a lot of being a well-rounded responder that, uh, that's required that we can't necessarily do in an eight hour class. And they only rise to the level of the lowest amount of training under those stress. Absolutely. They don't, you don't become some superhuman <laughs> and you know, you shoot like, Real quickly, you shoot these small circles, and they're all in the ten ring. Mm. Uh, guess what? That is under that controlled environment. You're if you were shooting at a paper target in an all crap situation, mm-hmm. it's going to be looking like a shotgun. Right, right. You you don't become some expert marksman. You're right. not John Wick when it when it hits the fan. Yep. You revert back to the lowest level of training unless you've been there and experienced those types of situations before. And people want to know, well, then how do I do that? Right. Because like, if, if you know, you can't just go out and like, okay, let's get in gunfights and prove we can do it. Like, right. That's not, not desirable. So that's where pressure based testing comes in. And that's eventually where you always want to get to, you know, to kind of switch gears to the medical side of things. That's where it's so important. Like in the majority of our medical classes, we end them in scenario based training where people are, we bring in our instructors, we make them up into a whole bunch of nasty moulage or, or fake wounds. And, you know, they're putting in scenarios, they're putting vehicle accidents, they're put in hunting accidents, they're put in, you know, re- you know, shooting range accidents, they're putting industrial accidents, whatever it may be. And then people have to come in and they've got to handle this. And it's about as close as we can get. You know, uh, our role players react and they act and they, they you know, don't want stuff done or they pass out or they wake up or they try to move or sometimes they're complying or, you know, whatever it is to, to give people that stimulus of like, okay, hey, man, this is, this is about as real as it gets. And it's the same thing in, you know, shooting training. It's like, you know, there's no way to really find out if you can process information fast enough and process your tools fast enough unless you are under some kind 
of force-on-force pressure-based training. If I'm actually up against people, how I react. And here's an interesting thing we find. In the, on the medical side of things, the first few scenarios goat rope every time it is a total goat rope and we tell people going into it hey guys everyone is going to screw up these first few scenarios even after being in class all day long you're gonna you're gonna make so many freaking mistakes don't even worry about it get through it then we're going to debrief and then we're going to do some more and most people go through about six or so scenarios and by the end of that last scenario they're nailing it they're nailing it they show up they do the right thing from start to finish and now we're nitpicking them by the end and on force-on-force stuff with, you know, shooting-related from, like, self-defense, what we see the first few scenarios, people murder people mm-hmm. because they they just go, like, oh, if all I have is a hammer, the world looks like a nail, right? So their only tool is that they've thought is their gun. Even though we've spent a day, day and a half working with them on other stuff, they default to what they know best, and boom, that gun comes out, and they murder people. And we go, hey, what did you, okay, we we stopped. Why'd the, you the shoot fight. that person? And we go, why did that just happen? And they go, uh, pff, I didn't do that. Well, fun part is we record them all. And we go, yeah, you did watch this recording. And they watch and go, oh my gosh. And you go, yeah, man, you're going to prison. Like, this is some serious stuff. What are you, how are you going to, how are you going to talk your way out of this one? And, <clears throat> or we'll watch people just get murdered because they're so hesitant to pull that gun or they're so hesitant to go to violence. And when it is time, it is time. And they're just so hesitant to, to get to that point. Again, by their fifth, sixth, seventh scenario, now they're making the right choice. Right. And so you've got to go under <clears throat> some kind of pressure-based training to really, truly see how you can perform multiple skills when a time constraint and a standard of performance is presented. Can you do the thing? Yeah. Standing right there in front of a range, in front of that paper target is one thing. You running down range and running back, jumping over a hurdle, doing a fireman's carry on on an individual, um, applying a, a tourniquet to yourself, and then shooting is probably more accurate than just standing there. And, and then you look at, like, you know, what do standards of marksmanship have to be? I don't want to go down that rabbit hole too much, but, like, again, like, as I said earlier, mediocre shooters win gunfights the world over. You know, not everyone that, you know, I've been experienced a lot in my life of being around a lot of, uh, you know, very interesting situations and people under, uh, you know, duress. And I can tell you that it's not always the expert marksmen who are getting the best work done. Right. You know, sometimes it's the guys who, they're just doing okay. Like, they're good on the range. They're good. I'm not saying they're bad. Right. They're good. They're good enough to keep, you know, to keep being a a part of the, the agency or the organization. But outside of that, <clears throat> like, dude, you have to be an amazing shooter to win these fights. You just have to be good enough. You have to hit some kind of standard. Our standard's always like a fist-sized group. So, you know, if I can hit a fist-sized group under all these circumstances, then I'm happy. Right. I don't need to stack bullets on top of each other when I'm talking about this kind of, sh- of shooting, yeah. which is more fighting. Stopping the threat. Mm-hmm. I don't, yeah, I don't need them all on a dime. Did you stop the threat? And did you mitigate your liability by not hitting little Susie Mm -hmm. that was 10 feet to his right or her right. And if I'm hunting, you know, I have a standard for my hunting shooting as well. Like for me um, with modern day hunting rifles. Now this, this has changed, uh, you know, from the time I, I grew up because our hunting rifles weren't as good back then as they are now. We have tack driving hunting rifles. I mean, we basically have precision hunting rifles now. They're, they're Mm -hmm. insane and they're not expensive either. I mean, my primary hunting rifles, a Tika T3X super light, and that thing one is of the best. Uh, 
murder machine. Uh, I, I shoot it in uh, six five Creedmoor. We've dumped elk, yeah, deer, buddy. and so many freaking cows. His, his favorite, <laughs> yeah, uh, dude, his favorite his, caliber, dude. We just, uh, you know, my wife just killed her big bull elk with a six five. Two days before Love that, it. my son killed his with a six five. We've uh, killed a couple, well, one other elk with a six five, and, and a, a handful of deer. I mean, it's just like, dude, placement. we have not had a problem. Yeah, it's all shot, shot placement. placement. I all grew placement. up. My very first elk I killed with a two forty three Winchester. Oh wow! After that, I killed everything with a twenty five out six. Until I just killed my well, actually, take it back. I killed one with a three hundred eight, and then I just killed my bull elk with a, a forty five seventy. Wow! Just because I wanted to go old lever action, whack it with the lever yeah, action. That's, that's right. Cool. My wife bought me a beautiful one of those new Ruger made Marlin eighteen ninety fives in forty five seventy. It's the only caliber in the make right now. And uh, man, once I got that thing, I'm like, this is going on the bull elk hunt. I love it, and love it, it was rad. I loved it so. Mikey, what are you, what are your thoughts on all this? This is kind of new concepts. It's kind of new, but I, I think it's um, very common sense. So first thing I what I hear is, and I know lots of people that are in the the gaming world, and I think a lot of it is they're so engaged with all this violence in the gaming world, mm-hmm. video games and everything else. It gives everybody a false sense of reality, and they think they're invincible. When the reality is, they're not. They have no idea how to function, operate when a situation like that comes. They can go on and they can save the world on a video game, but in reality, they crumble and they fall. And from everything I've seen that I've learned and, and kind of where I'm at, I can't believe I'm saying I'm going to be turning 50, but everything is the mental side. It, the physical is definitely a portion of it, but I think when I think everything that you guys are saying, it's all a mental state of mind to control the situation and to understand where you're at. Because I think so many people, when conflict comes up, whatever it is, they re- they react through either shutting down and not being able to operate and can't even comprehend or think, or they go into this flight mode that they still can't think or operate. And I, I've met very few people that can be calm in the, in the middle of a storm. Mm-hmm. And, and everything that I'm hearing you guys talk about is the training is to create that calmness of the storm to be able to think, rationale what's going on, and to make solid decisions, whatever that could be. So, I mean, as you said, your all your decisions in the beginning is to not engage in that last portion of it, where a lot of people don't know how to separate that, and they're either going to go charging or they're going to flight, and that may be good or may be bad, but if you're able to just, you know, have that, mental side of it to slow down think about it talk through and that's where the communication comes through and and understanding that or like you said we all get cut off everybody has to do 90 miles an hour and it's easy to get that road rage it's just taking that step back and just kind of laugh and saying you know what it's just another day in phoenix you know so yeah. to me i think a lot of it is that that mental change and i think we can kind of get sucked into that invincibility and then i think about the medical side and on the hunting side of what I've done, and, and I've known some people. In fact, I have a cut right here on my finger still. Um, the Havilon knife. Think about how many people are out hunting. They have this razor blade knife. We're out there skinning, doing whatever. And we slice our finger. We stab ourselves. And that could be a major medical situation right there that you're by yourself or you're with your hunting buddy. And what do you do in that situation? And I think that's part of that mental side is being prepared because that's something super easy. You're excited, you got the kill, you're on the side of a hill, you're dirty, it's night, it's daylight, whatever. And that knife is so sharp and it's so easy just to poke yourself. Dude, I can't even tell you how many 
injuries those Havilons have carried have caused. And I love them. I don't use them myself. Me too. Um, I, I don't use them myself. I, I use um, I actually use Moras. I've used Moras for years and years. It's a Swedish steel, easy little field blade. But man, <clears throat> uh, I know a lot of people. I know a lot of people have sliced themselves because every time it starts getting dull, boom, brand new razor blade. Absolutely. And it's like, man, that is a sh- that's a lot of sharpness. Uh, yeah. So to to kind of switch gears into that, I I, I want to help to educate some people here as well. So. Most of what's happening in field medicine, and this is really kind of blowing people's minds um, over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, especially the last 10 years with so many changes in medicine. I mean, it used to be that nobody was carrying this kind of equipment. Now, keep in mind, you know, you mentioned like tourniquets, right? So the CAT, which is the combat application tourniquet, the CAT is the most popular, most most well researched most well-documented tourniquet that we have access to it is the official tourniquet um you know of the stop the bleed campaigns the national campaign to you know uh, tr- teach and educate about stop and bleed concepts it's the number one tourniquet you're going to see with law enforcement fire ems and certainly the number one tourniquet you're going to see with our military professionals so what's interesting about the cat is i was first given one or issued one in 2002 so that gives you perspective on how long these things have been around. And at that time, they were, they were brand new. And so how long these things have been around and how little people still know about them. And so when we look at what most people are being taught in medicine or have been taught in medicine, a lot of it has to do with things like CPR and AEDs and, and stuff that quite honestly has a relatively low efficacy rate or, or effective rate uh, in the real world, one. And two, isn't really getting used that much. Now, I'm not saying it's a skill you shouldn't know. I'm not saying that the, you know, you shouldn't, if you could carry an AED with you somehow into the backcountry, I would highly recommend it. You know, a lot of people have cardiac uh, arrests out there for not just because they're, you know, old out of shape guys, but just because there's a variety of other accidents or conditions that can cause cardiac arrest. And so, yeah, we definitely want to have access to those tools if we can. That being said, way up the line is stopping bleeding. So I want to, you know, start with like the MARCH acronym. And so the, the MARCH acronym um, is something we use to treat and triage. So we're, it's what we use to treat a patient, and it's also what we use to triage multiple patients. And before MARCH, we're going to have something we call SA, which most people consider situational awareness. So this is a different type of situational awareness. This situational awareness requires that there's two things that we have before we start treating and triaging. One is S, safety it must be safe for us to start doing medical treatment. Now, if that's in a hunting situation, that means, I don't know, your buddy just got jumped by a lion, all right, or mauled by a bear. That kind of stuff happens. We see these photos on Instagram all the time. What's thing number one? Help my buddy? Kill the animal. Yeah. Right? Or at least Can't get... can help him if I'm getting hurt. If I'm getting mauled, I'm no, I'm no use anymore, right? Yep. So safety number one. If we're in a self-defense situation... I got to handle that first before I can start rendering medical aid. So safety is number one. And if I'm in a car accident, I got to get everyone off the side of the road. I got to make sure we're not going to get hit by cars. If I'm in an industrial environment, I got to make sure the machinery shut off. I got to make sure everything's under control. The A part of SA is uh, accountability. I want to make sure that everybody who is supposed to be here is here. So one of the first questions should always be asked when you show up is, uh, and and I'm, I'm saying even if you're there right there with the person, first question is okay how many people are supposed to be here is it one is it two is it three 
a full accountability. Then I also want accountability of what just happened and why it happened. What's the mechanism of injury? Sometimes we have to make sure that we're treating the right thing. Yep. The injury itself may not be our greatest problem. If someone's super dehydrated here in the summertime and falls off the hill and cuts themselves, that's the dehydration that's killing them, not the cut. Exactly. So with accountability, I got to look at those things as well. Once I have that in line, then I can start treating triage. And that is March, M-A-R-C-H. Pretty easy to remember. M is massive bleeding. Massive bleeding or arterial bleeding is what we describe active volume loss. Your, the blood is under hydraulic pressure with your hydraulic pump, which is your heart. The hydraulic hoses, which are your arteries, have been compromised in some way, and they are losing blood rapidly. The three tools that I'm absolutely going to need for massive bleeding are, one, a good pair of trauma shears. I need a good pair of trauma shears to get through heavy clothing. I need it to cut open and expose. I might need to get better access to this wound. I might need to cut someone out of a seatbelt. I might need to cut someone out of a pack strap. I might need to cut someone out of body armor or something like that. I need good shears. Not pulling out my <laughs> Avalon knife yep. to start yeah. cutting because what's going to happen next? We're going to cut, yeah. Yeah, we're going to exactly. cut the wrong stuff, right? Exactly. So we want a good set of trauma shears. The next thing I'm definitely going to need for massive bleeding is if the bleeding is on extremities, arms or legs, I'm going to want a well-made tourniquet. Now I'm going to put a a kind of a pause on that for a second, because when I say well-made tourniquet, I mean tourniquets that are approved by the committee of TCCC uh, or Tactical Combat Casualty Care. This is the organization that essentially approves tourniquets for use in the field based on criteria that's critically important. So a lot of people out there making stuff, calling them tourniquets, but they're not really tourniquets. These are things that you can call anything. You can, you know, if you're making a product, you can call it whatever you want, sell it. And uh, a lot of this stuff's just kind of made to separate people from their money. So the three yeah, that... As soon as you tighten it, it rips and the windlass breaks. So be very, very careful of replicas. You know, like cat has... Uh, their number one enemy of cats is the recon. That's uh, like this $20 tourniquet. They recently just lost like a $5 million lawsuit to Composite Resources who makes the cat because um, of defamation problems. Because people were having recons fail in the field and because they look so much like cats, they were literally filing cases against Composite Resources. And they're like, bro, this isn't even our stuff. Uh, so, And there's also a lot of replicas, yeah. just regular old Chicom knockoffs, and as well as replicas for like airsofters and military simulations and stuff like that. So make sure you're getting the right tools it's worth spending a, a little bit more if you're if you're spending less than 25 bucks you're not getting a real cat it's 25 to 30 bucks is a pretty standard price for that you know um good to get them in bright orange i like high visibility stuff unless your job requires it to be black no reason for them to not be high visibility same thing with the shears yep. uh, the other two tourniquets i would recommend are also the tmt from safeguard medical which is well proven and approved by the committee of TCCC and the soft T-wide made by um, Tactical Med Solutions. It's been around almost as long as the cat. I've used them numerous times. They're incredibly, incredibly well-made tourniquets. They fold a little flatter, and that's why I like them for some of my kids. Mm. But any of those three, are you're good to go. The, the cat, the TMT, or the soft T-wide, S-O-F-T-T-W or wide. Any of those, and you're, you're in business. So get good ones, get real ones. You can get them straight for those manufacturers. Um, North American Rescue is the main distributor of the cat. You can get them from other great, you know, distributors. If you're here in Arizona, the, the Tactical Medic in Mesa is our primary distributor for medical supplies. You can walk right into a shop and buy stuff. So, you know, that's a great place to go. Um, Green Feet Medical is also a organization owned actually by one of our instructors who sells medical supplies. So you can go to Green Feet Medical and buy a variety of cool stuff, including a lot of different kits and things of that nature. So, Get good tourniquets, have good tourniquets. Now, tourniquets have become really popular and I think overpopular. 
They're so popular that sometimes it's all people carry now. But remember, tourniquets are only good for extremity hemorrhage, arms and legs, and that's it. That's all. If it's up in the armpits, if it's in the joints, uh, or what we call, I'm sorry, not the joints, the junctions, um, so like pelvic, groin, if it's in armpit, shoulders, certainly, obviously, if it's in the neck, uh, you can't tourniquet the neck. That's not yeah. approved medical <laughs> intervention. But uh, <laughs> you got to say it. You got to say yep. it, right? Yep. Um, and then you're going to need wound packing. And wound packing, I believe, is, is a, a much more needed skill for a couple of reasons. And the first one I'm going to highlight with a story that happened right here in Arizona. You know, Lake Pleasant is one of our largest lakes here in Arizona, and it was hit at the early summer this year, or last year, 2022, uh, with probably the deadliest summer we'd had in a while. If you guys remember, it was six weeks, six deaths. They had yeah. a death every single weekend. And one of those deaths was a, a young woman um, who got run over by a boat, and her leg got catastrophically yep. separated uh, from a boat propeller. And it was high enough, and all that the boat patrol had, the, I believe it was MCSO boat patrol who responded, all they had, which is really common in law enforcement, all that they had was a tourniquet and they couldn't get it high enough because there was no, there wasn't enough leg left. Had they had and known about and were trained in basic wound packing techniques, which we teach in free to the public, stop the bleed classes. Like this is a basic level skill. If they would have just done that, I, I wasn't there. I can't predict anything, but I bet they'd have had a better chance that she, she still might've died. I don't know, but they would have had a better chance of doing an intervention that would have worked. Wound packing. I can always do even on, I'll say, tourniquetable wounds, uh, you know, something that is on an extremity, leg, arm, whatever. It's just, it's a little bit more invasive and it's a little more gross because i got to get a little more hands-on. Tourniquets are easy. Boom, slam them on. Kids can do it. You know, wound packing, kids can do it too, but it's going to take a lot more skill and it's going to take a lot more uh, invasive because you got to get in the wound and it, it's pretty gnarly. That being said, I believe that wound packing is a more useful and more needed intervention than tourniquets. And, and tourniquets become so popular over the years um, that, that it's just something I can, boom, I can slap on my belt. Well, I can slap wound packing supplies on my belt too. It just doesn't look as cool. Yeah, I was just going to yep. say that the cool tacked out AR in the medical field, a cool tourniquet hanging off your belt or an IFAC with mm -hmm. your uh, o positive <laughs> mm -hmm. is the cool thing. And I, I love when people put their blood type on stuff. It's like, bro, no medic or no, you're not going to roll into the hospital and they're like, oh, he's got O pause on his on his right. cool guy belt. Well, obviously yep. he's O pause. Let's exactly. just, it's like, dude, they're still going to blood type you no matter what. Right. Right? You're not on the battlefield or the medic's going to be like, calm, calm your horses. Exactly. But, but anyways, um, yeah, so I would look at, you know, carrying wound packing supplies. And that's just basic gauze or curlix, compressed gauze is, is really great, but regular curlix gauze is fine. And then some kind of a pressure dressing, which is an elastic bandage. We call them ACE bandages, but ACE to elastic bandage is like Kleenex to tissue. We right. call all tissue Kleenex. We call all elastic bandages ACE. But if you want to spend the most for your tissue, buy Kleenex brand. If you want to spend the most on your elastic bandages, buy ACE bandages. They're just more expensive. That's all they are. Right. But in the field, we use mostly elastic bandages. You know, we'll use pressure dressings as well, like the North American Rescue ETDs or the, you know, performance system. Uh, Israeli bandages or emergency bandages are very common. Um, the H&H &H, bandages are very common. The Oleus bandage, all very good stuff. It, it doesn't really matter. You just get a good bandage that you can add compression with. And then the other thing I like about carrying wound packing supplies over just a tourniquet is with wound packing supplies, gauze and bandage, there's tons of other stuff I can do. I can also improvise a sling. I can help with splinting. I can deal with minor bleeds. With a tourniquet, one and done. it's it, man. I, yeah. I can only do extremity hemorrhage. That's all I can do. But with wound packing supplies, I can do more. Um, so after we've handled M and basically that's just stopping the bleeding, keeping the blood inside the body, every, blood is, every drop of blood is precious. Then we look at A, which is airway. 
And we open the airway with the old school head tilt chin lift or jaw thrust techniques everyone learned in a CPR class. That's still the best way to do it. Uh, and then beyond that, we're, we're potentially going invasive if we need airways beyond that, which obviously we're not going to talk about right now. R is respirations. It's critical to check the airway before you check respirations because you want to make sure you don't get a false positive on bad respirations because their airway wasn't open. Like snoring, for example, is a perfect example of not having an open airway. If you heard someone snoring and you made no effort to open their airway, then you would assume they were in distressed breathing. Simply, you know, we all get the elbow from the wife and we roll over on our side. It opens our airway and voila, no more distressed breathing. Yep. So perfect analogy. Guilty. Guilty. Yeah. guilty. I'm guilty. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we all are, man. Yep. So, exactly. so once that airway is open, then we check for respirations. We're looking for even respiration. So, you know, if it's fast or slow, we don't really care about that right now. All we care about is this even. It's not distressed. They're not struggling to draw breath. If they're struggling to draw breath, we want to go back and make sure that airway is indeed open. And if it is definitely open, now we're going to take those shears and we're going to make it from the waist up. We're going to turn our fingers into tiny little rakes and we're going to pull on their skin in opposite directions, making little grid squares from the belly button to the neck. We're going to look for tiny little holes in there. And if we find any holes at this level, at this point, we're going to seal them up with a big old sticker that we call an occlusive seal. Sometimes people have referred to them as chest seals, but they're they're multi-use. We can also use them on the chest. And there's a lot of, again, a lot of good brands. The, the wound seals, the hyphens, the uh, sentinels, the... Uh, halos, one of my favorite ones, the halos. There's a lot of good ones out there. It, it's a really sticky seal. It's going to get the job done. So, you know, we want to use those things. And then we start repositioning our patient. And again, there's invasive concepts that we can do to then release that pressure. We're not going to cover that on the show today, but there are other things that we can do in the field to potentially release that pressure. And then we're going to reposition them. We're just going to start moving them around. Like we see in a lot of basic first aid classes, yeah. okay, roll them on their side, right? Well, the recovery position is okay. It's what we just described rolling into to prevent distressed breathing while we're sleeping. But the problem with positions like that is that they may still not provide the best comfort to the patient. So sit them up, lean them forward, lean them back. I mean, think about it, right? Like when you go for, when you have a good workout or you go for a good run or you take a good hike, do you lay down on your side to recover? No, No, man. You lean over, you tripod, you put your arms above your head. All those things open up your chest cavity. So if I'm trying to get someone to have a more open chest cavity, I'm going to reposition them, sit them up, move them around, lean them over, do all that kind of stuff. Uh, then you move into C, which is circulation. Uh, it's also what we refer to as the catch-all. This is where we do everything we didn't already take care of. We do MAR, massive bleeding airway respirations. Then everything else falls under circulation. Broken bones, burns, minor bleeds, environmental injuries, animal attacks, insect stings, rattlesnake bites, uh, CPR, right? No pulse. Okay, now's the time we get it restarted. Yep. And so everything else we do, we do now under circulation. And then we move into H, which is hypothermia or the prevention of shock. And most shock is going to reduce the body core's temperature. Our body core temp is 98.6. That's the ideal body core temp. 0.6. It's so specific it has a decimal point. Not 98. It's not 99. It's 98.6. We only get two degrees of variation before we start going either hypothermic, not enough heat, or hyperthermic, too much heat. And here in Arizona, we know about hyperthermia because we get a lot of heat exhaustion, a lot of heat stress and heat stroke and things like that. But all injuries, because all injuries are going to reduce the body's internal heat, are going to cause hypothermia. So that's going to start dropping that body core temperature. So anytime we treat someone for a traumatic injury, in the end, we must, 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 no exceptions ever. I don't care how hot it is outside, about what's going on inside. So if we think they start going into shock, and that's losing consciousness, we feel their heat vents, which are the neck, the armpits, and the groin. If they feel cold and clammy, 
they are going into shock, and we must heat them up immediately. This is where we separate them from the ground. We get them in the truck cab. We cover them up with blankets. We, uh, you know, add hot hands and things like that to them. You know, those little Zippo yep. hand lighter yep. or uh, hand warmer things. Whatever it is, man, you start putting heat into those heat vents, and you maintain that. You put more coats and more blankets, and you. I want that person sweating. You know, because I want them 100% able to manage their body core temp. If they can't manage their body core temp, yep. they're going to die. Right. Yep. Yep. Incredible. Incredible. So with that, we yeah. <clears throat> we covered a massive amount of of, uh, of information, and I'm sure people are going to hit pause yeah. and Google a lot of those products. Yeah. Um, yeah, just like skipped a stone across the surface of the lake. It's right? but, so uh, much. <laughs> But I wanted to give so something that, that people could take away for sure. On yours or on an IFAT kit, one individual first aid kit, what do you put in that that has the, the minor necessities to combat March? So we always look at the, uh, the things that should be in every trauma kit. And this is keeping in mind that a trauma kit and a first aid kit are different. A first aid kit handles boo-boos, and boo-boos are a totally different kit. That's our Band-Aids and our tweezers and our, you know, our little stuff, our aspirin. Well, that, that goes in a different kit. This is trauma-related. This is, oh, my goodness, someone might be dying kind of kit. In this kit, we want to always have five essentials. These are the five essentials we build all of our kits off of, and that is a tourniquet, bandage, gauze, shears, and an occlusive seal, something to seal up holes or other wounds. With those five items, I can do a lot. So like as an example, I brought my hunting pack in here. This is our lightweight. We actually have a lightweight hunter kit. So this kit has all of those essentials plus a couple other things in it uh, that are useful to those environments. And it, it's in a waterproof bag that lashes onto your kit, bright red, and it weighs 15 and a half ounces. Under a pound. There is no reason. that We specifically designed it and made it perfectly. It's all vacuum sealed in there. When you open it up, the shears, the tourniquet, and some gloves, which well, I'll talk about gloves in a second, but those things are immediately available. And then inside the vacuum sealed kit is all the other supplies. That keeps it lightweight. It keeps it waterproofed. Everything's 100% ready to go, and it's under a pound. And that was the idea was to create something. So there's something, two things I want to mention here. The first thing, I, I mentioned gloves. I don't care about gloves in my personal kits. We include gloves in most of our commercial kits because we don't know what everyone's going to be doing with them. If you're going to be touching other people, you, need, you should wear gloves. You should wear a lot of PPE if you're going to be touching other people. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to be touching other people, take gloves out of your kit. Yeah. Like in most of my personal kit, I don't have gloves because I don't really use my personal stuff to touch people I don't know. Yep. Now, my professional kits, when I'm out still working professionally as a medic or, or a, a responder, I have a lot of gloves. And I got surgical masks and I plastic eye pro and I carry a lot yeah. of stuff because I don't want people's stuff on me. Uh, but as far as like my personal stuff I'm using for me, my family, my kids, uh, you know, my wife, my friends, no gloves needed. So that's just an extra thing right. I can just take out. The other thing I want to mention is like the pouches. You know, we have these uh, waterproof pouches made by a company called Fehu Outdoors, who's a big hunter, a uh, big rifle competitor, phenomenal individual and uh, up out of uh, Idaho or I'm sorry, Wyoming. And, <clears throat> you know, we, when we went to him, it was like, we got to make this thing, waterproof and high visibility, we want to keep the cost down. Because one of the biggest issues I see with uh, a lot of med kits out there, if you look at them, is you're like, you know, they're 200 bucks or whatever. And when you look at all the supplies, it's only like 60 bucks or 70 bucks worth of stuff in a $100 pouch. Yeah. And you're like, dude, why do I need a $100? I'm not jumping this into Afghanistan. You know, like, I don't need yeah. that kind of quality here. I just need it to be able to not leak water or not, you know, 
not fall off the backpack. Open. Yeah, it just needs to not rip open when unless I want it to kind of thing. So always look at that. And like most of our kits, most of my personal kits, man, put them in a Ziploc bag. Yeah. You know, free, most of us have like freeze or not freeze uh, vacuum sealers. Right. You yep. know, so dude, just throw the kit in a, exactly. in a vacuum sealer and seal them up. That's what this is. Yep. You know, it makes That's takes especially up especially if you're into work. counting ounces and yep. And all that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And if you're really trying to count out, so we take everything out of the package. You know, almost everything we can, we take out of the package. Uh, the only thing we don't open up is like burn dressings because they need to stay sealed and hemostatic agents like quick clot, cellox, gauze that's impregnated with blood clotting agents, which we, we didn't really get into, but is a benefit to have for a, a number of reasons. Sure. But if you're, you can't open those because they activate with moisture and there's moisture in the air. So those things, burn dressings, those things need to stay sealed. But your gauze, your bandages, your tourniquet, uh, your chest seals, all that kind of stuff can come out of the package. That reduces that much more clutter, that much more space, and that much more waste. And people and what it's ready to go. And they go, what about sterility? And I go, what about sterility? There's nothing sterile about the environments that we're in. And wouldn't you rather stop that bleed and potentially have an infection and go make it to a hospital than to bleed out and then what? And it doesn't matter anyway, because whatever made the injury is unsterile. You're right. unsterile. The patient's unsterile. The environment's unsterile. Exactly. It doesn't matter. So, yep. yeah, once you get to the hospital, no matter who you are, what injury you have, you're getting pumped full of antibiotics. So it's, yep. it's not that big of a deal. Yep. But, but, yeah, so when you look at, you know, those kind of things, those are the five basics we would put in. Expanding beyond that, that's when I would consider putting in hemostatic gauze. My, like my next five would be hemostatic gauze, um, gloves if I'm going to be touching other people, uh, tape because I love taping stuff in place. It's super beneficial. Yep. Some kind of light source and see what's the other thing we always add we had a thing first thing oh burn dressings right so those are the other five things that i would want to put in and burn dressings not just for like hot burns but also for you know road rash someone rolls their their four-wheeler goes skin down the you know side of a mountain with their pack on and just you know raspberries the hell out of their arm that you really want to have access to some kind of burn dressing so those are the other five things that i would then want to put in the kit and then from there expand based on whatever else it is that you perceive you're going to need your level and, of training, the level of, yep. that you're willing to spend. Yep. And the context of how I think I'm going to get hurt. You know, if I'm, yep. if I'm working on the shooting range, our shooting range kit has more of things that are related to, you know, like gunshot wounds because yep. that's more of a reality on a shooting range. Me getting shot by a gun out in the hunting, I'm, it does happen. Hunters it's, do accidentally get shot, but that's pretty slim. Yep. More than likely, I'm stabbing myself with my, my yeah. you know, I'm caping something out and stab myself in the leg or yep. fall down a mountain, bust my leg open or you exactly. know, something along those lines. So those kits should reflect that, those kinds of tools. And on uh, just to touch on the gloves, if you do carry them, as a reminder, make sure that they're the lighter color. Everybody wants black and it looks tactical, it looks cool and all that. Well, guess what? When you are doing TCCC and checking yourself or your buddy over and you're checking for any type of bleeding, uh, whether it be small or profusely at night. And even during the day, if you are touching those wet areas of blood, you are not going to be able to see that it is blood. If you have black gloves on, maybe it doesn't look as cool. Get the white gloves, get the blue gloves, get something that you are going to be able to make sure. And you see when you are self-diagnosing or diagnosing someone else, that you can see that it is actual blood, and then you'll know where it's coming from. 
absolutely that the 100 an excellent point and i really like the bear claw gloves from north american rescue they're tan so it's easy to see fluid and stuff on them and they're very durable so you know we're out there in the outdoors and now we're potentially kind of grinding these gloves against the ground while we're trying to treat somebody well your regular nitrile gloves are just going to rip exactly these bear claws are thick enough to withstand that kind of environment while still being thin enough that you can actually feel. And no matter what you do, it sucks doing everything with gloves on. So if you can avoid putting gloves on, definitely yep. avoid it up to the point that you have to. And like you said, it's not just even blood that you're going to be touching. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, people pee, they poop, they vomit, they sweat. It could be raining. It could be snowing. Um, and if they just got in a vehicle accident, it's, they're Coca-Cola yeah. for all you know. You know what I mean? Right. Like there's all kinds of fluids out there. And so when I'm pulling my hands back and trying to see what I've got on my hands, I want to know what it is. I'm going to freak out, think it's blood and it's really coca-cola or sweat yeah. or something so um and just brief touching um most of us hike or not most a lot of us have dogs mm. a lot of the stuff that we're describing can be used but there are certain things if um, you educate yourself a little bit more get some minor things that are that are used for dogs you got to see whether or not a hemostatic gauze you know, would have a reaction with a canine. Um, different things are going to work for them, but just be cognizant because if you're out there by yourself, that's part of your self-reliance. Fido is one of man's best friends. You don't want something happen to them. They can get heat stroke, heat, heat exhaustion, dehydration on any of these trails, burnt pads, slip pads, all that kind of stuff. So do your due diligence, do a little bit of research and look into different things. North American Rescue also has stuff, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, spirit, uh, geared specifically to dogs. But there's, you know, get on a veterinary site and see some first aid stuff and maybe make a special pack. You could keep it in your truck. You can keep it in your car. If you're hiking long distances and you don't want it necessarily in the backpack to weigh you down, but do your due diligence and, and carry the necessities to be able to treat any and everything that you're bringing out there. Yeah, and I'll expand on that just a, a little bit, and that is, uh, yes, 100%. Everybody needs their own kit. Remember, like, your own people. You're not the only person who's carrying medical supplies here. Remember, the IFAT concept that comes from the military is the individual first aid kit. What it did, and this kind of happened, rolled out in the early 2000s, was that everybody, regardless of their job, regardless of what they were doing, everyone got an individual first aid kit, or the IFAC. And that meant two things. One, that everybody could treat themselves at least a little. And two, that we had just distributed medical supplies across an entire area. Now we had so many medical supplies out there, instead of just one medic having a kit. So sure. now take that same mentality, bring it home. My wife carries her own AFAC, or her IFAC, I mean, in her, in her purse. My kids take their own IFACs in their backpacks to school. And when we're hiking, they have their own tools. My dog is no less. I got a big old German shepherd. He's got one of those harnesses that we put on him when he hikes. He's got his own med supplies in there. It's not my job to carry his stuff. It's his job to carry his stuff. <laughs> yep, you know? Love it. Love it. And, and in that vein, um, for people who are interested in that, uh, one of our instructors, Adele, who is a phenomenal, phenomenal medic, um, he actually designed years ago and, and teaches probably about three or four times a year for us right now uh, a canine trauma class. And it's a phenomenal class. You get to bring your dog. Uh, Adele is a dog whisperer. I don't know how he makes all the dogs get along, but in all the classes we've taught, we've never had a dog fight. But wow. somehow he makes all the dogs get along. And you will be training with your dog in class. That's really, really important that you do that. You know, he trains uh, like DPS canine teams, um, CCSO, um, MS, uh, MCSO, uh, I know YCSO. He, he trains a lot of the canine teams, search and rescue teams, all their guys on how to, you know, get their dog back up and running. Having been to that program with him, 
I can tell you that I didn't have a lot of canine experience before he started teaching that program with us as far as, you know, medical stuff. It's the exact same stuff. Right. It's the exact same stuff. The only thing you really want to add to your dog's kit, in addition to some boo-boo supplies, like to help their pads and things like that that get torn up. Um, like I also have like hemostats and a comb in there. Um, to get cactus out of them because that's really important. You know, the little sure. doggo's gonna he doesn't yeah. he, does, he doesn't recognize Choi in the same exactly. way we do. Exactly. But something that's really important for every canine first aid kit is going to be a muzzle. And you can make a muzzle out of a tourniquet, you can make a muzzle out of a triangular binge, you can make a muzzle out of a pressure dressing. That's all fine. But having a pre made soft muzzle and they fold I up didn't so even think small. About that. They fold up so small. Uh, my dog one hundred percent is one of my best friends and he will bite me bad when I start doing this stuff because everything we're going to do is going to be incredibly painful. Wound packing is painful. You know, straightening a leg is painful. Bandaging something is painful. We can explain to each other as humans, hey, bro, yeah. this is going to hurt real bad. So just yeah. get in your happy place because here we go. You know what yep, I mean? Exactly. Whereas with your dog, you can't explain that to him. So yep. a good soft muzzle for your dog, critically important. Also being able to get your dog out. So they, they make a, a couple of different harnesses. Um, we've practiced with a couple of them. And I think the one, I want to say it's called like canine carry or phyto carry or something like that. And, you know, my shepherd is almost 100 pounds. And so just throwing him over my shoulder, you know, if it's a little bird dog or something, yeah. you can kind of toss him over your shoulder and kind of fire him and carry him out of there pretty easy. But, man, you got a big old animal. That's a lot to just sling over your shoulder sure. and hike out of here. So to have a harness or something you can throw them into and carry him out, Maybe something to consider if you do have a larger dog, especially, you know, my guys who out there who run lion dogs and some of those animals are pretty, pretty good sized pups. Exactly. And so, you know, having a harness that you can throw a dog into and, and get them out of there is important. But yes, having a muzzle, I would say is, is critical. And most of the time, because dogs, uh, arms are so, or legs are so small, uh, the cat tourniquets or similar tourniquets don't work as well. And most of the time an elastic bandage, just properly applied, will give you the same tourniquet capability that a windless style tourniquet will because their their limbs are small enough. Again, wound packing is going to be critical for canines. Yeah, that a pressure dressing and an, an elastic bandage can do a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, you can only tighten the cat tourniquet or anything mm -hmm. so much. <laughs> it is a good point on the muzzle. If you start tightening that windless and they start crying. Chomp, chomp. Oh, yeah. Chihuahua, the German Shepherd, the yeah. Rottweiler. I don't want to get by, bit by any of them. Yeah, and we got <laughs> another. Sorry. Like you said earlier, we got we're stacking another yep. problem on top of a crappy situation already. And so, if, for those of you guys who are interested in that program, you can go to our website. You can find the dates that are on there. Um, I know he's got at least three dates that he's teaching in Arizona um, this next year, and they're going to be between Phoenix and, and Flagstaff, and then. Uh, you know, you can contact us directly, and if you want to set something up for your organization, we've gone and done it for, you know, kennels. We've gone and done it for dog training places. We've gone and done it, obviously, for law enforcement agencies and, and uh, things of that nature. So if it's a, something that you have a group of people that are interested in dog training, just hit us up and let us know because we're, we're happy to help you out with that. But that is a, a very excellent point that you bring up. Is And this applies to everything, man. Your livestock, right? This applies, you, you run cattle. you got sheep out there. you got goats out in your backyard, whatever it is. Um, the only thing it doesn't work for, none of these techniques work for house cats. Unfortunately, you just got to let them go. <laughs> yeah. yep. Can't save them. Sorry. Yep. Sorry, cat lovers. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, I hope we can have you on again. I know time is precious. Like we said, when we first started, there's so many more things that Mike and I want to, to oh, yeah. cover. Yeah. 
if we can have you on again, there, hopefully we can. Sure, we'll, we'll make, make some happen. time. Yeah. And I know Mike probably has tons of questions. Um, anything else before we close out, Mikey? Uh, there was there's so much. I'm trying to process. I mean, it's it's incredible. I mean, it's we'll talk about some of the other incredible. disciplines that uh, independence training has. If you want to check them out. Let us know the social media and the website again, Glenn. Yeah, so our, our website is trainingaz, like training Arizona, trainingaz.com. And that'll pretty much get you hooked up to everything. But if you're on social media, we are the most busy on Instagram. And you can find us under independence training. Really easy. Remember, it's all ease. Okay, after the first I, it's all ease. All right. But uh, independence training, just one big long word. Uh, that'll be under Instagram. If you're on Facebook, same thing, independence training. All of our Instagram posts just go to Facebook. And uh, we do have some YouTube stuff. We haven't been very uh, active on YouTube for a couple years because of a lot of the problems that, that a lot of people in our industry have with YouTube. But we do have a lot of older videos on medicine and shooting and stuff like that. It's all still relevant information. And uh, just a great way for people to you know, you know connect to us if they want to. Please check them out. Um, you guys, all this stuff is to make you more prepared to be able to take care of yourself, to take care of a loved one to take care of your friends, to take care of your best friend, your dog, whatever it may be. Um, the world isn't getting any safer, as everybody sees. We're not here to scare everybody, and, and World War III isn't happening tomorrow, but it is imperative for you to be prepared in order to take care of yourself because, like we said, you are your first responder. And I, I do want to mention uh, free Stop the Bleed classes. A lot of times people, will, you know, they'll see our classes initially like, wow, you know, if they've never taken professional training, they don't know what to expect on, on tuition. But we offer a free to the public Stop the Bleed class, uh, which is done through the, the National Stop the Bleed campaign. You will get an actual certificate for completion and all that kind of stuff. And that is the second Saturday of every single month. We've been doing this since 2017, so we've been at it for a while. Wow. Uh, it's the second Saturday of every single month from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. at the Tactical Medic in Mesa. We say it's free. We only have so many chairs, so if you want an absolute chair to sit in, you can go onto our website and you can sign up as many people as you want for a dollar a piece. And that dollar basically just secures you a spot to put your butt. Yeah. Um, but it's it's literally you could walk in last minute, may have standing room only. It's different every month. You know, this last month it was really packed. Um, you know, I, I know actually the last really the last year, year and a half has actually been pretty packed classes, but sometimes there's 15 people, sometimes there's 25 people in there, but it is a totally ultimately free to the, free to the public class. We provide all the training supplies that will get you going. If you wanted to buy anything, the tactical medic is the shop that we buy most of our stuff from and boom, he's right there ready to, uh, you know, to, to show you different kits or tourniquets or bandages or whatever it is you want to learn about. So, um, and it's our different instructors rotate through that. So, you know, sometimes it might be me or it could be one of the other, 12 people or 11 people technically. So, um, that's a no brainer. You'll meet somebody. It's a free class. Uh, And it's family friendly. It's totally family friendly. We always have every single month. We have families in there. We have kids in there. You welcome to come through as many times you want. We get a lot of frequent flyers who are just in there from refreshing or they come through and then they come back with family member or whatever. So if you're in the area, totally free, uh, class basically. So, yeah, all those skills are perishable. If you don't stay up and practice, then what's yep. the use? Yep. Mikey, can you please close us out? All right, Lord, we just, uh, we're so thankful for the knowledge that you instowed today. It's just an incredible opportunity, Lord, to just make us look outside our, our four walls and realize that there is things that we can do to protect ourselves, our family, and those individuals that are around us, Lord. And I just ask, Lord, that 
that through this podcast, Lord, that people will see the, you know, the the opportunity, Lord, to to somehow say, you know what, maybe I need to just do a little extra to make sure that I'm protected, the people around me are protected, and to get this technical training, Lord, that is so essential to life. And as as we know, through you, all things is created through the blood and through life, and, and these things happen, accidents happen, things are misfortunate, and through these types of trainings, Lord, we know that that we, we can solve and we can protect people. So I just ask that you would just uh, open up our ears, our hearts, our minds, and I just ask that you would just help us to take those that leaf of faith, Lord, to, to realize that we're not, we don't know everything, and we're unprepared, and to go get some of this great training that we just heard today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you.